There's a well-known saying in the true crime world, never marry a Peterson. This case is one of the three that made us fear this family name. Did Michael Peterson kill his wife Kathleen, or is one of the bizarre theories a valid representation of true events of the night of December the 9th, 2001? This is the story of Michael Peterson. I was thinking, if I was to ask you a question, what's something that isn't necessarily criminal, but you still consider a crime? I think everybody would have, like, a different answer pop up on top of their head immediately. Let me know in the comments if you do. To answer my own question, something that I consider criminal truly the longer I keep doing this, is how little details are available on so many cases. Sure, some cases, you can only search for, like, different sources online, you know, there are, like, some historical cases you can't really find information. This isn't one of those cases. In fact, I have watched and listened to multiple podcasts, multiple people cover it, people who profit out of it, people who monetize on it, have millions of views and millions of subscribers. And yet, after researching myself, I have not heard about 50% of the information I'm going to be telling you about today. To a degree that while reading the book that is on the screen behind me, I at times wondered, is this still the same story? Like, are we still talking about the exact same case? Because why did nobody give us this information? One of the reasons is that Stephanie Harlow still didn't get to this one yet, to do an even deeper dive that I will, but this is definitely going to be a two-parter. You might ask why, Maya? Why does this case need to be a two-parter? Because with the ignorance of facts comes the emergence of dumbness. And by emergence of dumbness, I mean the emergence of conspiracy theories. And the criminal part, really, that I see when it comes to the coverage of these cases is that without the facts, without the background on the individuals that the story actually revolves around, well, you can't really make an educated guess on what truly happened to them and why. Which means, due to that, a lot of people tend to believe in owl killers. And I just want people to see reason, because this story truly is about one man manipulating the system, the people around him, every single person that he has crossed paths with in his life. Yes, you can say I am a bit biased. I will try to give you the factual parts of the story for you to make your own decision. And that brings me to the topic of the book that I have read on this case. I haven't watched a Netflix documentary because Netflix documentary is truly Michael's account of events. So it's very skewed to portray him in the innocent light and also doesn't really give you much information from other accounts of people, in this case that I have heard, that are truly only based on the Netflix documentary. This book is kind of biased in a different direction, but Diane Fanning had interviewed the family members, had interviewed his family members, literally everybody in his life on the background part, so I think it's well written and that it also gives us that factual information for us to make these kind of deductions ourselves. 
That ramble aside about the things that feel like crime but aren't criminal, if you want to listen to two other people that have been proven in the court of law to be guilty and also share the same last name to Michael, you can head over to the By All Means Necessary podcast channel or like wherever you listen to podcasts and listen to those two. I always kind of like pull one case that I share on the podcast each month and share it on the main channel for you guys. And with Michael, it's be personal. It's that personal. Because <laughs> I love me a good manipulator. I love to break them down for the people so that they can spot the skills, so they can spot the personality traits in others, in everybody in their surroundings. Okay, keep that vibe going. So let us talk about Michael motherfucking Peterson. Our story starts with a woman named Mary Ellen, who worked the overnight shift at the 911 dispatch center in Durham in North Carolina. That night she started her shift not really thinking anything eventful, anything out of the ordinary is going to happen. That was until 2.40 a.m. when Michael Peterson rang 911. If the YouTube doesn't decide to copyright the video, I will put it in. Otherwise, I'm going to just describe what Michael said on the phone. Mary answered the call saying, Durham 911, what is your emergency? Michael, breathing heavily, said, 1810 Sadder Street, please. Mary asked, what's wrong? Michael said, my wife had an accident. She's still breathing. She that Michael is speaking about is his wife, Kathleen Peterson. To which Mary responded, what kind of accident? Michael said, she fell down the stairs. She's still breathing. Please come. Mary asks, is she conscious? To which Michael is breathing heavily. He seems disoriented all over the place. He asks, what? Mary repeats the question. He says, no, no, she's not conscious, please. To which Mary responds with, how many stairs did she fall down? Michael again says, what? Huh? Mary repeats the questions. Michael says, the back stairs. So Mary asks again, how many stairs? She's telling him to calm down and he responds with something like 15 or 20, I don't know. He's hysterical, still screaming, please get somebody here right away, please. She tells him that somebody, as she's speaking with him, is dispatching the ambulance while she's asking him questions. He again reiterates the address, saying it's in Forest Hills, okay, please, please. This is the only part of the call that is available online, but still on the line Michael continues to ask, where are they? This is 1810 Seder. She's not breathing. Please, please, would you hurry up? So, in response, not Mary, but the dispatcher who was organizing the ambulance, sends out a code 5 message indicating to the ambulance and the first responders that the patient condition is critical. The code 5 also meant that the police was now dispatched to the scene. 
Now Mary tries to get Michael to answer one other question. She's saying, calm down, they're on their way. Can you tell me for sure she's not breathing? And what she heard on the other end was just a click, as if somebody just hung up on her. So she's repeating, hello, hello. That 911 call came in at 2.40, sort of 2.41, and the paramedics made it to the scene by 2.48. By around 3 a.m., the police will start to arrive, but they won't secure the scene by 3.25, which is something that is going to end up really haunting them and will mess up the whole beginning of this investigation. Now, this next bit I wouldn't like you to Google, especially not at, like, 2 in the morning, which is the crime scene pictures. Like, if you are squeamish, it isn't the most graphic of pictures out there, but it is still bloody and just gruesome, and I probably can't put it in because YouTube will ban me for life. So let me just try to describe it as much as possible. We are talking about a really narrow stairway with the side rail and also with the electric chairlift on the east side of the staircase. And this electric chairlift made the first responders and the police on the scene believe that Kathleen might have been disabled. But she wasn't. The chairlift was just never removed. It just came with the house. The staircase in itself had 18 steps, and the last three were kind of directed towards the hallway. So basically, like, with an angle, with the last step just, well, leading you to step off into the hallway. And the hallway is where most of Kathleen's body will be found. So the way that the first responders encountered Kathleen was with her neck broken and her head lying on step number 18 with a lot of blood splatter all over the walls. And the rest of her body was facing the hallway with her legs just outstretched. Both of her socks will be soaked in blood and next to Kathleen will be only one of Michael's trainers. Next to Kathleen will also be a roll of paper towels just lying by her left foot. The paramedics and the police will kind of conclude that it seemed as if somebody was trying to clean up the scene. Just from the papers, just from the blood splatter, just from the blood splatter on the walls as well. But the main reason why the first responders and the police and a lot of internet sleuths out there will find this whole crime scene suspicious is because of Kathleen's position. Like, how did she fall out of the stairs to the point where her body is just sprawled almost completely in the hallway with her neck broken in this way, having blood splotched all over both of her legs with the blood that was within her hip and waist area being the dark, wet, red color, seemingly already dry, and then just a pool kind of flowing across the floor from underneath her body. Meaning, the thing that stood out to everybody was the blood on the scene. A, it seemed like somebody tried to clean it up, wipe it up. B, it seemed like the blood was going upwards on the walls. It didn't seem really consistent with the fall, especially how and where she fell. And finally, even just looking at the crime scene, even just looking at those couple of square meters, 
it seemed like the blood has already congealed in a way. It seemed like it was already drying out. Like this didn't just happen minutes before Michael Peterson picked up the phone to call 911. Between 2.48, so let's round that up to 2.50, and 3.25, until the police actually closed off that scene, there was just mayhem all around. The paramedics immediately knew that Kathleen was dead for at least 40 minutes to an hour and a half. They would obviously elaborate on that further when she actually gets seen by the autopsy technician. The firefighters were next on the scene, followed by the police, but nobody has closed off this scene yet, to the point that once the firefighters arrive, they notice Michael's son Todd arrive on the scene with a couple of his friends. They've been out partying and they just returned to the house, and it seemed like Todd has returned to the house once before and then had gone off to call some of his friends to come because his dad was in the state of shock. And he had this friend of his called Heather that was like a medical student. So he just said like, no, let us go through. My friend Heather needs to see my dad. He's in a state of shock. She needs to check for his vitals or whatever. And Heather is there offering help for Kathleen. And the paramedics are like, it's too late for that. We are literally just going to transport her into the ambulance. We're just waiting for the police to, you know, take pictures of the crime scene before we do so. So Heather goes to check up on Mike, who at this moment was outside in the patio section, just kind of not responding in a state of shock. When Heather approached him, Michael just stood up and started pacing back and forth, just crying and moaning. Around 3 a.m., Sergeant Borden enters the crime scene, and he immediately spots three red flags. So, even before making it to the staircase, he observes some blood prints in the kitchen. It seemed to be like smeared blood on the kitchen drawer and then on the glass cabinet above it. The second flag was the positioning of Kathleen's body. It looked like the neck had been broken and that also it was in line with the spinal cord. So, he thought any way that she fell her body wouldn't have just been sprawled in one straight line. And the third flag was the blood surrounding Kathleen. It seemed like there was already discoloration, meaning that it already began to dry. At this point, though, nobody is still controlling what Michael and Todd are doing. So Michael is on one side of the room checking emails, surfing the internet, mumbling to himself while he's doing that, and Todd... Well, Todd is lawyering up. From the get-go, Todd Peterson called his uncle, Michael's brother Bill, who was a civil attorney in Durham, and he told him, like, what has happened, Kathleen has died, she fell down the stairs, and Bill told him he's going to call the clerk, like, he's going to call the police station and tell them that nobody is allowed to speak to Michael unless his attorney, his brother, is present. Bill does that, calls the police station, and at the police station at the time, they were collecting documents for the search warrant to immediately search Michael Peterson's house as soon as Kathleen's 
body is taken out of it and the pictures are taken just so that nobody manages to maybe hide something that they might want to conceal. While this police officer made these observations, the same thoughts came to the mind of the paramedics, looking at both Kathleen and Michael. The blood on Kathleen's clothes appeared to be dry, and looking at Michael and the clothes that they were to take from him, there were speckles of blood over his shirt, so sort of like not all in one place, but it just looked like there were, you know, bits of blood on like completely illogical places on that shirt. Also, there was blood on his hands and arms and parts of his legs and feet. There was spatter on his tennis shoes and also inside the right leg of his shorts. With a warrant in his hands, Lieutenant Art Holland took charge of this case. With a warrant in his hands, Art Holland now took charge of this case. He appeared on the scene and just served this warrant to Michael. When he handed it over to Michael, Todd just kind of grabbed it and said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? So Art just explained to him that now they have the warrant. They can take the photographs, they can take the video footage, they can take all of the evidence that they need. And as Art Holland calmed Todd down, he started speaking with the paramedics on the scene about what they witnessed. And as soon as Art approaches him, this paramedic tells him that once he appeared on the scene, Michael kind of seemed like hunched over Kathleen, but he didn't seem to be performing CPR. Nobody on the scene seemed to be doing that, neither did they ask the 911 dispatcher to guide them on how to try to save Kathleen's life. And then he came closer to Art and said, this doesn't look like an accident. It's not a fall down the stairs. It was a rod-like instrument. You should be looking for something like that. Before we pick up from this scene and find out what has actually happened to Kathleen, has she fallen down the stairs? What are all of the theories? we need to start from the beginning and go through their background, Michael's, Kathleen's, and also somebody else's in this story, and then terminate part one with a timeline of events on the day, and then pick up from this very point in part two. So let's do that. Let us start with the background of Michael Peterson. To understand who Michael will grow up to become, we need to understand his parents. At least this book discusses the patriarchs well. We don't really know much about Michael's mom, but we know a bit about Eugene Ivor Peterson, his dad. Eugene spent early years of his life in Nevada. He was raised on a ranch, homeschooled in his early grade school years because there were no schools nearby. But then the depression hit, so his family lost everything and had to move to Reno to kind of downgrade their lifestyle. Then they would move to San Francisco. This is where Eugene would pick up the schooling, he would attend Galileo High School, and here he would excel in tennis. He was actually ranked 14th among all high school players in the country. After his graduation, Eugene's family moved back to Reno. Here he played tennis again, and he studied at University of Nevada, and here he graduated with a degree in agriculture. In Reno, his mom would make friends with another woman, now that they have moved there for at least a while, 
Everybody in Peterson's family kind of led a nomadic lifestyle, which will affect young Michael and would become a prevalent topic down the line. But here, this woman met with Eugene's mom and they kind of decided to play matchmaking. And this is how Eugene got to meet and marry Eleanor Bartolino. As soon as they got married, Eugene joined the army, and this was in the middle of the Second World War. So, while he was serving in the army, Eleanor gave birth to their first child, Michael Ivor Peterson, on October the 23rd, 1943. While Eugene was defending the country, Eleanor would pack up her baby and move in with the sisters for the duration of the war. After the war, Eugene would pick up his family and move them to now-occupied Japan. But don't get too attached to Japan, because they won't stay there for a while. There's only one story in Michael's life that happened in Japan, and it's probably one of his first lies, I guess. Maybe somebody told him this story in this way, or maybe Michael just had a knack for exaggeration. Because what he said happened to him while he was a toddler, really small child, in Japan was that he got kidnapped and then baptized in a Shinto shrine. And what actually happened was that the family was kind of rich, you know, there were all these army families living as one unit and they would all have maids. And this maid brought him to like a Japanese shrine to have him blessed. And he just misconstrued that. Or was it just the lie number one? in a long string of lies that are coming up in this story. After Japan, the family would move to Washington, and here is where Bill Peterson, Michael's brother, was born in 1947. All four of them would now move again to Japan. Throughout the years, they kind of lived this nomad existence that was typical of military families. They would live in Japan, Georgia, Kansas, San Francisco, Virginia, North Carolina, they would also live in Denmark, so Michael was pretty used to this lifestyle from a very early age. In 1951, John Peterson was born, and then in 1953, they finally had a daughter, Anne Peterson. As a young kid, Michael spent part of his childhood as an elder boy. Both Eugene and Eleanor were... Catholic. Eugene actually converted to Catholicism once he married, and all of the children were raised in the church. Michael would go on to study political science at Duke University, and here everything he did that was extracurricular was to do with writing, some form of creative writing, writing for the school newspapers, for the annual yearbook, for the campus magazine. He was all over the place, really doing well for himself, being representative of the student union, involved in the campus YMCA. You know exactly the type of person that I'm speaking about. The one that thinks, like, all of these things will look amazing on my CV, and then they just do the most. I'm not judging you, I just, you know, think you can also sometimes chill and just get drunk every other night. <laughs> you know, it's one or the other lifestyle that people have led through uni, and it is very clear which group I belong to. In his senior year, Michael also sat at the Interfraternity Council. So, here, he was actually involved in choosing 
the new members for this secret men's society that was founded, you know, by the predecessors in 1913. This order, this secret society, was all about promoting the social spirit of the school. But of course, it evolved with the years, especially when Michael Peterson was there. And now it was more focused on fostering loyalty and interest in the university through anonymous service in student organizations. As the member of this council that consisted of seven men, Michael was one of the seven people to select the juniors to take his place. And what he was looking for was character, qualities and potential for leadership and outstanding service to the university. Even before he graduated with a major in political science, on one of his journeys back home, wherever back home was at that time, this time it was in Pennsylvania, Mike would meet Patricia Bateman, that we would call Patty from now on, because that's what everybody called her. And here he would kind of immediately have feelings for Patricia, and they were reciprocated, so they started seeing each other. After he graduated from Duke, he started studying law at the University of North Carolina. And this adventure would only last for about a year, because he kind of started creating enemies already. He was against this university ban on speakers that claimed the Fifth Amendment rights should be used during congressional hearings. And then the second thing that kind of was the of the iceberg, the straw that broke the camel's back, was that he assisted this law professor in this controversial, famous case, and he assisted the professor to defend this gay man charged with sodomy. So that pretty much sealed the deal on Michael's law career, but he couldn't really suffer for too long, because even his first job was kind of in a high-power position. Mike graduated sort of in the midst of the Vietnam War, so during the Vietnam War, Pentagon was sending the ground troops to Vietnam. And this provided, like, a pool of jobs or vacancies for defense consultants. So one of these companies hiring for Pentagon hired Michael Peterson as a systems science analyst. But before he started that job, in 1966, Mike and Patty would finally get married. Soon after starting this job, Mike was actually sent to Vietnam to work as this defense analyst. And this is one of the most interesting bits in this story that truly speaks about who Michael was as a character. Because during this job, he was supposed to be one of the people working on the study to determine whether two or more mechanized divisions could win the war. And here is where his superiors told him the truth is irrelevant. Only thing you need to do is make convincing arguments. Then we can send these convincing arguments to these divisions. Even if they're pointing to the contrary, just put these biased findings forward and conceal the truth. And Michael was really disgusted with the atmosphere because obviously this wasn't the only study. He was disgusted by the reports that he would be seeing about how people lied about the amount of deaths, the amount of people dying, and how those reports differed to what was sent back home. 
but he wasn't disgusted enough to leave this job, to go back home, back to his life, change career pathways. He just continued doing it, and in fact, it really inspired him to become a writer. Because, you know, he was only doing that as a hobby during his university years, but now he was like, no, let's put this with my vision, and let's actually put the pen to the paper and start writing. I have this unique experience of what I'm witnessing. I should put a pen to the paper, write this great story, the Hemingway style. But he thought for him to really write the story, to really feel it, he needs to fight in the war. Michael, however, was never supposed to serve in the war because he had an injury that was classified as 4F. He had an injured leg that shouldn't have allowed him to serve, run, do any, like, physical activity that was required from the soldiers in Vietnam. But he somehow managed to wipe that record of the system. So he was deployed. And for his stationing and serving in Vietnam, he would later say that he received a Purple Heart Medal. And this is the award that is given to the soldiers that were injured, hurt, killed in the war. But what actually came to light years and years down the line was that Michael actually, again, bent the truth to suit him. He never received this medal. People that he instructed that worked under him did because Michael was responsible for the accident that got them injured. So, basically, the book kind of summarizes this, like, he was the one giving the orders of when the soldiers should retreat one day from, like, the enemy fire. But he froze, he underestimated the time that they were gonna get to them, he didn't give them the signal on time, so a lot of soldiers got hit, and some of them got severely hurt, paralyzed, that was the instigator for this medal. And here I think it was, well, bending the truth, of course, later down the line, because he didn't actually get this medal. But also, I feel there must be a different name for this in psychology, but I see some projecting on Michael's part here, because he probably wanted to be the hero. He probably wanted to warn them in time, to issue the command that would have saved this soldier's life, but he didn't. So there is a part of regret on his side that he didn't do that, that he projected and probably told himself multiple times in his head that he isn't responsible for it, that he had done the right thing, and eventually convinced himself that he's the hero in the story where he must have wanted to be a hero, but wasn't. After this, Michael got an honorable discharge, and he got it on the basis of medical disability. I'm not sure if this was fake, if Michael was actually one of the people that was partially hurt during this incident, or whether it was just stated that it is medical disability because they wanted him out of there due to this incident. And this is when him and Patty moved to Germany. Michael and Patty would be moving in between Durham in North Carolina and Germany, different little small cities in Germany, because Patty really liked it, and she also was teaching in primary schools, so she managed to find jobs in those areas. 
And at this point, Michael got kind of like benefits after he was um, discharged from the Marine Corps and also started studying at Duke again. Through her teaching job, Patty met two people that are going to become prevalent in this story. One of those people was also called Pat, and she is kind of going to serve to provide us the insight into the Peterson's home, and just in general into Patty's character. And then there was another friend called Liz. Both Pat and Liz would later say that it always seemed like Patty was walking on eggshells around Michael. That a lot of times when they would agree to meet up with Patty, to see a concert, to see her performance, her husband would also appear. That he seemed to be kind of controlling and also didn't like for somebody else to tell him what he can or cannot do. And in this environment, in 1974, Peterson's first son was born. His name was Clayton and he was soon followed by the second son named Todd in 1976. Liz would become Clayton's godmother and Pat would become Todd's, just showing you what close bond both women had with Patty. All three women really loved children. I mean, all of them were teaching in primary school, so they were teaching really small children, but Liz at the time also opened a private school in her home. So Liz is somebody we need a bit more in-depth information about because she's really one of the main characters in this story. So let's talk about her. Elizabeth Ann McKee was born on November the 3rd, 1942. Throughout the first part of her childhood, her parents would shorten the first two names into Betty Ann, and that is what she would be known as. She would leave this name behind once she entered school in 1960, and from that point on, she would introduce herself as Liz McKee to everybody. She landed her first teaching job shortly after graduating, but she always yearned to work at a place that was more exotic. Because she grew up on the outskirts of Rhode Island, so she always wanted to pursue her dream for an adventure and to see the world. Finally, this wish of hers would be granted, because the Department of Defense hired her as a teacher in Japan's North Island of Sapporo. Besides teaching, one of Liz's passions in life was really about creativity, whether it was her musical talent, her piano skills. Liz would be one of those people on every party that people would ask to sing. When she would hear a song once, everybody said that she was the person who could repeat it with ease and grace. Somewhere in between the teaching, the singing, the traveling, Liz became friends with another teacher, Patty Peterson. That is how their paths have crossed. And once she met Patty, there was only one thing missing from Liz's life, and that was a husband. And she found one in a tall Texan who was an Air Force navigator named George Redley. In 1978, now all of these families are stationed in Germany. George and Liz would get married, and Patty would actually be Liz's maid of honor at the wedding. And Liz's family, Liz, George, and two daughters that they are going to end up having, were living just across the Peterson's household. So sort of across the street and then a couple of houses down. And everybody who looked at the friendship between Liz, Pat, and Patty, 
would say that it was just the best thing ever. I mean, they were godmothers to each other's children, they were maids of honor at each other's wedding, they shared the same interests, they would go to the same museums, the same cultural performances, the same concerts. Everybody looked at this friendship as like a really wholesome unit. Everybody, that is, but Michael Peterson. In June of 1981, Michael's youngest sister, so if I remember Anne was the youngest in the family, she and her husband John actually came to Germany to stay there with the Petersons for about 14 months. They used Peterson's house as a base and then they would be traveling to different cities within Germany. And during this stay, Anne had the opportunity to bond with her brother, like she never did before because of such a huge age gap. And she said that every time, you know, she met Liz, she met Pat, she met all of them. She met all of the people in the immediate friend group. And every time she would ask Michael about Liz or, like, you know, one of the two would get mentioned, Michael would always say, ah, oh, no, the two of them are crazy. Just no reasoning. Just Liz and Pat, they're crazy. Both of them just crazy. I don't really like hanging out with them. Which then begs for a question, why do you hang out with that Mikey boy? And she also noticed that Michael was kind of isolating himself. Most of his time, Michael would be spending either writing or just going to the gym. And, well, he didn't publish anything yet, anything that would bring them profit. And it seemed like the only salary that they were receiving as a consistent income source came from Patty. So they just wondered, you know, how did they live in this huge house? How did they drive a Mercedes? How did they get to do anything on the side? Because of this secretive nature, John and husband asked Mike, are you maybe with the CIA? Like, do you work with the government? What is going on? Like, why can you not tell us what your source of income is? And Michael at first, like, said nothing, but then later he would say a couple of things. He would say that, indeed, he did work for the CIA. He said on the CIA's orders he killed a man who was causing trouble in Vietnam. He also claimed that he had been the next to the last white man out of Ethiopia after Emperor Hale Selassie was overthrown. He boasted that he drove, at some point in his life, through Yugoslavia. No, mate, you did not come down to my ends. <laughs> I would know over Michael Peterson if Yugoslavia ever had a record of him going through it. And this was when it was a Soviet bloc nation, so hey, maybe he didn't make it into the history books, guys. <laughs> Imagine learning about fucking Michael Peterson in, like, my primary school for history. <sighs> that would have been something. Even this is. This is something. I don't know what it is, but it's just lying for no particular reason. That is what it is. Then he said he was in Yugoslavia about 20 times. <laughs> for what? And then was in East Germany more times than he could remember. This case, for me, overlaps with two other really famous true crime cases. And when it comes to his lying, he really reminds me of Casey Anthony. It's just the smallest lies. It's just the lies where you're like, 
why are you lying about that? Just say I'm working on a book, because that is what he was doing, as we are gonna learn down the line. Just there's no reason for this mystique and like, oh yeah, I can't just be sitting on a couch writing and going to the gym. I need to present myself in this mysterious light. Like, no. Just chill and don't lie about irrelevant shit. Certain lies that Michael Peterson would tell you might think, like, for what? What are you doing this for? But then when you look at it as a whole, there were certain times when Mike's lies were intentional. And they were intentional in order to bring a rift between Pat Liz and Patty. There was couple of occasions, two at least, that Pat remembers that Michael Peterson actually stole from her. The first instance was when Pat visited Peterson's with some German marks in her purse, in her wallet, and at first she didn't make anything out of it because it wasn't a significant amount. She thought it might have just like fallen out of her wallet or she might have just left it at a restaurant. The second visit to the Petersons led to Pat's card disappearing. She just seemed to have lost her card. And she obviously went to the bank to get a new card to block the other one. And well, when they checked her account, they told her during this exact period of time that Michael Peterson was in your presence, well, four withdrawals of around $250 were taken out of your card. So she tells Mike, well, you know, I reported this lost card to the bank and they're going to be investigating the theft to see if he owns up. So he does and he tells her, you know, I'm so sorry, Pat, like, I will repay you the money eventually. And he never repaid it in full, but this was when the rift between Pat and Patty had begun. Because Pat, I know this is confusing, because both of them have very similar names, but Pat called Patricia, Patty, Michael's wife, and told her about this, and Patty kind of took her husband's side. She said, like, yeah, we will repay you, but, like, you know, fuck it, like, yeah, he might never own up to it, because it's just silly Michael. It's just how Michael does things. Finally, though, all of the writing in the basement and exercising to pump that testosterone might have paid off. Mikey boy might not even need to steal from her wife's best friend's purses any longer, because he's about to publish his first book. In July 1983, The Immortal Dragon, a 527-page paperback, was published. The novel traced the love and lust of three generations against the backdrop of the power struggle between France and Vietnam. Treachery abounded in the corrupt ruling court, and the traders were bent on exploitation, while priests labored to save the heathens' souls. Sex played a major role. From the bliss of the marital bed, to the rampant promiscuity of a sorceress, from the homosexual advances of powerful men, to the humiliation and degradation of women. He combined what he always knew he will thrive on, war and sex, into one. Sex being the common thread throughout the book, all sorts of sex, heterosexual, homosexual, marital, extramarital. And it was a success. He finally started making money. Then, out of nowhere, just as Michael was finally experiencing successes of his hard work, Lizzie's husband, George, died. 
He died suddenly while on the base, so I'm not saying that Michael or anybody was responsible for this. But the autopsy didn't really give them any answers. They stated the cause of death as unknown, the location of death as unknown, and they never will really get the answers. The toxicology report was negative on all fronts, like things like poison, alcohol, drugs. And they actually compared it to a crib death, kind of like a sudden infant death syndrome where he just fell asleep and died. Another mystery for everybody was why... Patty, Michael's wife, wasn't at the funeral. Because Michael would be the person carrying the casket and accompanying Liz and her two small girls. If anybody even started up a conversation about why is Michael suddenly close to Liz, he would say that actually George left her without a will. Like, it's so important to have a will, you just don't even know. And this man died without a will, so... Liz's finances are all scrambled, and he has a degree in political science and can help her out with that. He just started, like, unraveling this thread that will lead him to start taking care of Liz, the two daughters, and the finances. Michael would be the person to take charge of drafting a will for Liz, now driving the importance of the will and providing for the family. This new will stated that if anything happened to both Liz and George, well, George's parents would assume guardianship of the two daughters, and if they were unable to do so, then Patty and Michael would take care of the girls. This wasn't raising red flags with anybody, because the Petersons were really close to the Radcliffs and took care of their daughters, like, they all hung out together in one small circle of friends anyways. But also partially because nobody really knew about this. So, for the next two years after George's death, Liz would find this nanny. Her name was Barbara, and she will kind of give an insight to certain parts of this story later. She would be stationed and live in, but then she would be taking holidays and also going to visit her family as well. And on one such night in November 1985, when Barbara was out of the house, Mike Peterson left Liz's home, and he would be the last person to see Liz Radcliffe alive. About 10 p.m. that evening, the neighbor that lived just next to Liz's house would look out of the window just at the time to see Michael Peterson leave Liz's house, sort of look around as if he is checking if anybody has seen him, and then continue down the road to his own. The next morning, Barbara showed up to take care of the girls, to babysit. And as soon as she saw the stairway, she saw yellow boots at first. And then she saw what she thought was a red jumper. And as soon as she approached the bottom of the stairway, she realized it wasn't a red jumper. It was a pool of blood. And within that pool of blood was the body of Liz Radcliffe. Because her daughters were still in the house, Barbara rings the Petersons to come over so that, you know, she can possibly wake them up. And while the kids are still groggy and not really understanding of what is going on, to kind of get them out without the two of them seeing 
their mother in that state. And of course, Michael is the first person there. He is the person taking care of everything. He immediately rang the American military, told them that a Department of Defense employee has just passed away. At noon, a special agent for the U.S. Army Command walked through the door, and he didn't even really bother to examine the body. He just kind of made an exploration of the stairs, looking for anything that would contradict what Michael was telling him, which is that this looked like an accident. So, the German police just came in, followed up from the U.S. Army Command, and they just made the same conclusion. There would be an autopsy done on Liz, and they would state her cause of death. We're gonna be talking further about this in part two, but if I remember right, it was something to do with, like, brain hemorrhage, which they deduced can be caused due to the fall down the stairs that she would have suffered. The Criminal Investigation Division also won't be following up after a call that they have received from a woman named Pat, the same Pat that was friends with both Liz and Patty, that said that she was a close friend to the family until, well, Michael Peterson started stealing from her, and that it seemed like Michael had an unhealthy obsession with Liz, that it seemed like he was paying close attention to her finances, her children, taking care of her, and it was just creepy, while at the same time he was saying that Liz was also crazy. Now, you might be wondering why I'm not mentioning the daughters' names, and it is in particular because of this next part of the story, because it's just so frustrating and just devastating. You can find them online, they are public online, but I just would rather you leave these two women in peace, because they have really went through a lot, just with the death of their father, their mother, now being orphans, and technically being left to the mercy of Michael Peterson. Michael wasn't wasting any time. He brought Liz's will with him to Texas, he filed it immediately at the beginning of December, and his filing of this will meant that now he had the responsibility to take care of the two Ratliff daughters, and also it meant a monthly check of around $44,000 from the government for taking care of them. At first, they just lived in the house across the road with Barbara still babysitting the girls. And Barbara also gave an insight of the Petersons' household. She said that Patty would, whether or not it was intentional, Barbara thought that it was, would be staying at school late, like, beyond her school hours to do all of the schoolwork, all of the preparation for the next day there, rather than doing it at home. This would mean that all of the children, but especially Michael's biological children, would be left with him to be bringing them up, and he wasn't really engaging much. Usually, lunch and dinner would be served in front of a TV with them just watching whatever they wanted to watch. But more disturbingly, Barbara noticed how he treated Liz's daughters, so not his biological, but rather the adoptive children of Michael, and she noticed he had a clear preference for the daughter that was more outgoing. In fact, Barbara would actually leave for a week, leaving all of the kids to Michael and Patty, and she said once she returned, the one that Michael didn't really have a preference for, 
was all bruised. She had black eyes, she had like a bruise behind her ear. Barbara confronted him and he said that she was a really bad, bad girl and that she needed to learn manners. So he thought he's gonna teach her manners by beating the shit out of her. Barbara would soon lose touch with the two girls because Michael's nomadic lifestyle just had to continue, so he moved from Germany to the US, taking the girls and the whole family with him. And of course, the girls missed Barbara, Barbara missed them. But then they would move back and Michael just refused to pay Barbara. So he just wanted that contact between Barbara and the girls to disappear so that he can again be in control of the whole situation. And during this time, he really started seriously considering and while well, taking actions towards getting the girls adopted. He went all the way to, to getting the girls to move with this soon-to-be adoptive family for like a trial run. But then, according to Michael, the family didn't want to adopt the girls. In my personal opinion, I think it was more the check that he was getting monthly for these two girls that impeded that adoption. So the girls had to fly back to North Carolina. Again, no stability for these two girls who have lost both parents. One possible reason for Michael to be neglecting all of his children could be that finally he got a literary agent. He finally seemed to be getting somewhere when it comes to his writing. With the help of his literary agent, he would work on this manuscript for two years. And finally, in 1990, he got an advance on this book. An advance of $600,000. A Time of War was finally released as a hardcover. The dedication in the book would read, To Patty, who suffered all my wounds. To Clayton and Todd, whose suffering, I pray, is only in my nightmares. To the dead, and to those whose suffering cannot be relieved. So, I don't know if you noticed, but he didn't mention the two other children that he is taking care of. So, as much as he loved these two girls, well, he didn't love them enough to put them in the dedication of his masterpiece. Let me do the same that I've done for the first book and read you a blurb of what this book was truly about. The book was set in the midst of war in Vietnam and filled with high-level espionage, acts of personal bravery, and both heterosexual and homosexual escapades. According to the writer of the book that I have read, authors praised it with enthusiasm. It was the book that propelled Michael onto the New York Times bestseller list. So, this was 1990. Between that and the end of 1991, Michael will move once again. He will move to Germany, but this was kind of brief. Soon he was to return to Durham with both of the daughters of Liz, and he left Clayton and Todd with Patty in Germany. But then, at the end of 1991, all of them were to move back to Durham. Another thing that was going on in Durham was that there was a family that moved only a block away from the Petersons' house. Well, they lived there, it's just that the Petersons suddenly started hanging out with them. And this was the house of Fred and Kathleen Atwater. Their daughter, Kathleen, was in between two of Lizzie's daughter's age, 
So they would meet up, they would go to like birthday parties together, hung around in the same friendship groups. Now 1991 comes around, Patty has moved from Germany with the two boys, and she has also announced to all of the friends that Michael and her are separating. They haven't divorced yet, but they will. They haven't divorced yet, but they're just about to submit the divorce papers, and that Michael had already moved in with all of the children with Kathleen Atwater and her daughter, Kathleen. Fred and Kathleen divorced first, and Mike and Patty were just in the process of separating. And now a stage is about to be set for the new beginnings, and finally the rise and the fall of Michael Peterson. So let us now talk about the woman who will become Michael's second wife, Kathleen. Kathleen's grandfather died when Kathleen's dad, John, was really young. So that meant that John was left to support the family by the time that he was 10 years old. He moved his family from Canada to New York, he learned the bricklaying trade by himself, and after completing his education, he started off his own construction company. In 1940s, the secretary that worked for John caught his eye. Her name was Veronica Hogan, and she was from New York, but she was also 21 years younger than him. So Veronica, Kathleen's mom, might have found John attractive because she just lost a father figure herself. Or it might be that she just fell in love with an older man. Whatever it is, the two of them would end up falling in love and getting married in 1946. They would move to Kansas, where their first child was born in 1951, Stephen Hunt. Then they moved to North Carolina. And here, in 1953, Kathleen Cathy Hunt was born. Kathleen's family, quite like Michael's, led a pretty nomadic lifestyle, because they would move once again to Pennsylvania this time, and in 1955, this is where Kathleen's younger sister, Candice, would end up being born. Five years after that, they would have another sister called Lori. And at this point, John, their father, was on the older side. He was already 63 years old. But both John and Veronica really stressed the value and the importance of education to all of their kids. And it's the 1950s. You might be thinking, why would a bricklayer, who indeed, yes, managed to own his own company one day, and somebody who was his secretary, be pushing for education so much? And it is exactly because of that, because they wanted their girls to have an easier path to success, to have better lives. So from the get-go, from when the girls were two years old, they would be having trips to the library, they would be renting books out, they would have encyclopedias at the dinner table. And it's something that, I don't know, from any story that I have ever covered, I resonate so much with, because this is exactly what my parents have been doing. My mom was teaching me how to read and write from the age of three. Both of my parents really just wanted to instill the importance of studying hard in order for you to be able to work smarter later. So sort of like work hard so you can work smarter later. And that was what Kathleen had done. She was excelling 
at school. Everything she would touch would just turn to gold. She belonged, obviously, to multiple societies. She was the president of the debating club, editor of the school magazine. She played on the tennis team, volunteered at a hospital. And due to all of these successes, in 1971, Kathleen Hunt was also the first woman ever admitted to Duke's University School of Engineering. So with Kathleen, all of her family members gave her a nickname, Kathy, when she was younger. And it would be once Kathleen returned from her first semester at uni that she said, from now on, Kathy is behind me, don't call me Kathy, just call me Kathleen. I find it so eerie, like my skin is crawling now right now, the fact that both women who died in staircase deaths in this story kind of had that switch between their names, kind of leaving like one identity behind and turning into this whole new person. Liz was called Betty Ann and then she said, no, call me Liz McKee. With Kathy, it was the switch to Kathleen. I don't know what it is, but I just find it eerie because among all of the similarities between these two cases, that isn't the one that is influenced by anybody but these two women. I just find it interesting because both of them were extremely intelligent, smart in their own different ways. And as such, I believe to a certain degree that Michael Peterson saw both of these women as a challenge. Again, in two completely different senses of that word, in completely different areas. But there is something that drew Michael to intelligent, powerful women. I'd like to know what you think about this one. Like, am I reading too much into this? It's just that something drew Michael. And I think on one end it was a challenge, and on the other he wanted to be seen, associated with, whether it was friends or, like, immediate family, future wives, with people who he considered to be on his level and not beneath him. And Kathleen, if that is in any way, shape, or form, was well, well above Michael in every sense of that world. Because this woman was insanely, insanely smart. Kathleen ended up graduating from Duke with Bachelor of Silence in Civil Engineering in 75, and then she married Fred on August that same year. Fred was also a Duke alumni, and he finished his doctorate in physics after the two of them married, and Kathleen pursued master's in Civil Engineering. In 77, Kathleen would finish her master thesis, and again, I don't even understand what her job entails. That is the level we are talking about. She got a position as applications engineer at Baltimore Air Coil Pritchard. Okay, so this company would specialize in the construction and repair of large-scale field-directed cooling towers for use in industry and at power-generating facilities. She was an engineer, all right? She's smart. She's doing it. <laughs> She's bossing it. In 82, Kathleen was just thriving on all fronts. She finally, after some time, managed to get pregnant. She was going through this difficult pregnancy. But she also got promoted that year. And the most fulfilling day, because of all the struggles when it came to getting pregnant, 
for her came on April the 27th when she gave birth to Kathleen Veronica Atwater. For the next five years, the two of them are living just a sweet, normal life. Kathleen switched companies. She was now working at Northern Telecom that later switched their name to Nortel. But her marriage with Fred seemed to be crumbling. Candice, Kathleen's sister, would mention that she would sometimes go to, you know, visit Kathleen, to visit Fred, and it just seemed like Fred's co-worker, female co-worker, would always be there. And she just thought, like, that was really odd. And so did Kathleen, because it seemed like Fred was bringing his mistress into his family home, which is one of the weirder things in today's story. And just like that, she decided to give Fred one last chance, but then they all went on a trip, kind of on a holiday, and when they returned, she realized there was no point, so she asked Fred to move out. During this same time, her sister Candice was getting married, and it was kind of like bittersweet for Kathleen to just, you know, celebrate the wedding when she just got divorced and needs to think about the rest of her life, needs to think about how to bring up Kathleen so that she doesn't miss having one of the parents, so that she goes through this divorce in a healthy way. At that same time, a block away from them, Michael and Patty were going through a rough patch in their marriage. Because Caitlin was friends with Lizzie's sister, her mother, Kathleen, would be honed in on what's happening inside of that house. And the book makes me believe that Kathleen really reached out to this family, that she started befriending both Michael and Patty, in order to fill the void in her life, because she was lonely, she was just recently divorced, and she really liked the girls that were hanging out with her daughter, Kathleen. So this is where we sort of left it off. Before any form of stability could really settle now with these two families having been divorced, Lizzie's kids still being moved around with the Petersons, Patty and Michael still haven't finalized their divorce. And Michael actually, even though he was living with Kathleen, with the kids, he actually thought, why don't I give it one last chance? So he moved Lizzie's children with him to Germany, to sort of try reconnect with Patty, and then again, after a couple of months, he realized this isn't working, I'm going to go through a divorce. So he and two of the Lizzie's children moved back in with Kathleen and Caitlin, and Patty and the two boys, Clayton and Todd, stayed in Germany. Due to this instability, due to his dad not giving two fucks about any of his children, biological or not, Clayton started acting out. And when I say acting out, this is the part I have not heard among everything else I have told you in this story anywhere else. But Clayton started creating bombs. And that is one thing that the book sort of elaborates on, but not enough for me to figure out where did this passion come from. Because where in the living fuck did it come from? During his senior year in high school, Clayton ended up blowing up a phone booth after his application to the MIT was rejected. He also tried to send chemicals that he stole from his own school to his dad's house in the States. 
and the package didn't make it because the acid or whatever the fuck it was trying to send, well, injured mail handlers and it was intercepted and destroyed. On this occasion, he didn't really pay any price. Michael didn't really scold him while he was an actual tyrant with the other two girls. No, whatever Clayton and Todd did was just approved by Michael. And, of course, because of that, this won't be the last time that Clay will act out. Finally, having settled down, Michael went back to writing, and he wrote another best-selling novel. He still had that advance of over half a million dollars for a time of war, and on top of that, his agent just got an advance for a new book called Peace and Reparations. And here he got around $450,000 as an advance. With this new source of income, he found a perfect home for Kathleen and him and the children to move into. This home in Durham will consist of 14 rooms, 6 bedrooms, spiral staircase in front of the house, another staircase in the back, and a swimming pool. What I didn't know, apparently as a fake fan of Margaret Atwood, as I realized while researching this, was that this house was actually featured in The Handmaid's Tale, like one of the later seasons. It just adds to the eeriness of it all, knowing what will happen in it. This part is just wild to me. The house was priced at $1.2 million. That's not the part that's wild, because, you know, it had 14 rooms, the pool, like, how much did he expect it to cost? The part that is wild to me is that because he didn't have regular income, you know, being a freelancer, being a writer, Michael actually managed to convince his, well, almost ex-wife, because still, technically, the divorce hasn't finalized, Patty, to sign on the loan, in order for him to close the deal on the house in 1992 and move in with his new girlfriend, soon-to-be wife. I don't know what kind of talk Michael Peterson had going for him, or what kind of dick game, which is something I definitely don't want to be thinking about, but what did this guy say to these women to convince them to do things? The book says that he got his parents to talk to Patty, but still, she must have known that he's moving into this house with his new wife. But also, I don't think the vice versa happened in this situation. I believe that Kathleen wouldn't know of this, and that this is just going to be the first in a set of lies that Michael will base this new relationship on. Because of how grandiose this house was, because of the status that both Kathleen and Michael held in the society, they would host a bunch of parties in this place. Kathleen would open her doors for the reception, for fundraising galas, for the American Dance Festival, for Durham Art Guild, for chamber players, for ballet performances. She was a hostess. She was planning dinners. She was making most of these dinners by herself. But with the way that the papers portrayed these galas, she was known as the Martha Stewart of Durham. Both her and Michael immediately became involved with the Neighborhood Association. Kathleen was also on the Durham Arts Council. She was on the board of the directors for the Historic Preservation Society. She was keeping that house spotless, clean, ready for whoever is going to ring up next to have the next gala at her place. 
The only drawback, the only flaw really to all of this at this time was the fact that with a move with Michael, Candace, Kathleen's sister, didn't really speak with her for over a year because Candace always kind of judged the fact that Kathleen moved in with a still married man, that she didn't wait for him to get divorced before she moved in with him. The two of them will eventually make up but it kind of just drove a drift in her family, just like Michael loves to do with all of the families in the Durham area. If you were in Durham, North Carolina, and knew a guy, Michael Peterson, the chances are you also had a drift with one of the family members in it. Eventually, because Kathleen hated the drift that this was driving in her family, she invited her whole family to this new house to meet Michael, and everybody said that they really loved him once they met him, that he was quite funny and also really just entertaining. He could speak on just any topic. So once they met him, they were pretty satisfied with Kathleen's choice, and in the end it all seemed to be working out. Now Michael is kind of in a lull when it comes to his writing, and of course he has to make the money in order to pay this mortgage and in order to pay off the loan to Patty, who is apparently still the name on the loan for this freaking house. So because of the circles Michael is running in, former US representative Nick Galifanakis introduces him to this other guy in 1993 for the two men to collaborate on a book. The other guy was the reporter for the Charlotte Observer, and again, this book was supposed to talk about war and heterosexual and homosexual activity within the wartime. So, for research, again, most probably unbeknownst to Katty, Mike was taking these different trips, sort of provided by this Charlotte Observer, in the name of research, and these trips were said to be to steam rooms or other places where homosexual activity was researched. Now, Michael will, of course, later say that Kathleen was aware that he was bisexual. I don't for a second doubt that Kathleen had no idea, A, that he was bisexual, B, that Patty was on the loan for the house supporting this, because if you remember, Kathleen divorced her ex-husband Fred because of his infidelity. Do you really think if she knew that he was doing homosexual research on the side while engaging in homosexual activity, that she would have stayed with him, in my personal opinion? She wouldn't have. But this will be something that will drive the narrative at trial, and Michael will always say that Kathleen always knew and accepted it. This will not really be like their first problem on the agenda, because remember Clayton? Yeah, um, he wanted to blow up another place at this very moment in time, so good timing, Clay. Good, good timing. In 1993, Michael actually sent Clay to the Duke Hospital for some counseling because he was misbehaving at home, and he was also being reported at university for disciplinary problems. He was also in Duke, by the way, the same uni that he went to, and that, well, Kathleen went to as well, without the two of them ever meeting each other there. And he was studying engineering. But what I read from this is that Michael knew 
he knew that his son was having some issues and was trying to just, again, submerge them, just keep these issues private on the hush-hush within the family, something that he thrived on when it came to the accomplishments, when it came to them being on a council, on the board of a certain establishment. He would showcase that to everybody. He would boast his huge house to everybody. But when it came to all of the secrets, Michael really tried to keep them on the down low. So, because Clayton ended up being released by the end of that year, in 1994, in a closet of a building at Duke University, a bomb made out of Gatorade bottle filled with gasoline has been found. On a nearby table, this uni administrator found a note that stated that the war had been declared on the university. Once they actually started searching into who might have used these items, who might have wanted to blow the school up, they found that the official ID cards, the student ID cards, were used for somebody to claim the stolen equipment. And Clayton was the person that used his own student card. Of course, the police was called, and now the police had enough probable cause for a warrant to actually search Michael Peterson's house. And here, Michael cooperated, thinking this is just gonna go away, just like the previous time he blew up a telephone booth. But in the attic, the police found rocket engines, gunpowder, coffee grinder, lengths of fuse, and stolen IDs, as well as six pipe bombs and the materials to make 13 more. This guy is pulling off some Timothy McVeigh shit under, like, Michael Peterson's watch, and nobody speaks about it. Like, how did he come up with these ideas? Because this is radicalized views. Like, he must have picked it up from somewhere. With this nomadic lifestyle, who else but somebody in the family or in the school? And Michael just never paid attention. Not just that, but the bombs that they found, I just find this so fucking insane. Two of the bombs that they found in this attic were rigged for aerial assault, meaning that Clayton constructed them in such a way that they could be put onto the arrow, and then with a crossbow, he would launch a bomb so that, of course, he isn't harmed, but he's harming whatever the target is. Michael suddenly was a center of attention for all the wrong things, because he had to respond for his son technically wanting to blow up all the places. And he would kind of belittle this. He would say, that's nothing. Those six little things couldn't fit inside a shoebox. Clayton would, of course, get arrested for this, and Michael started lying for him from the get-go. He said that this the bomb creation that was going on in the attic, without Michael knowing, was actually just a diversion, because Clayton actually wanted to steal ID equipment in order to replace the fake ID he lost in mid-April. Of course, made zero sense. He said there was never any intention for Clayton to activate any of the bombs, that there was only an apolitical, hedonistic intent to party. I do not comprehend. But because Clayton was both caught in the possession of these items, and also they figured out that he was the manufacturer himself, he could actually face 30 years in prison. 
and also could rack up over $750,000 in fines. He was 19 at the time, so his dad, of course, urged them to have a mental health evaluation, and they decided that he wasn't fit to stand trial. Later, these psychiatrists would change their opinion and they would find him fit to stand trial. And in exchange for him submitting a guilty plea for possession of the bomb, the prosecution dropped all of the other charges. So he was released to the custody of his parents with an ankle bracelet and an order to receive psychiatric treatment. But his attorneys advised him not to receive psychiatric treatment. Like, do you want to be blown up? Like, just a general question. What is wrong with everybody in this story? During his trial, the judge sentenced him to four years and one month in federal prison, and also to pay less than $2,000 for the damage that he caused. After he was released, he was also to be supervised for three years and to perform 100 hours of community service each year. With all of these issues, Michael had to focus on the new book. Oh, what is this one gonna be about? It's gonna be something different, groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yes, so his new work focused on the Camp Pendleton porno scandal. The blurb of this book outlined a creative non-fiction work attacking the military's denial of rampant homosexual activity and its fear of the threat it posed. This book was to detail 43 discharges and the imprisonment of one marine, cult underground of pornographic films, and also to expose the records of the men who conducted this witch hunt. In the conclusion of the proposal to his literary agent, he wrote, The fear and prejudice of homosexuals is just another in the long line of bigotry, and eventually it will be overcome also. There is no question of this. The only question is when. What, after all, is there to fear? As he was writing another book, pretending he understands homosexual issues while he is super, super straight and macho, his first marriage would also dissolve. He would finally finalize his divorce with Patty. And Patty took this to heart. She thought she was marrying for life. She thought she was only going to marry once. And she still, even though Michael lived with Kathleen, called him her husband. So this was quite a hard hit for Patty, but not for Michael. Michael proposed to Kathleen kind of straight after, and then the two of them got married in 1997. Between 1997 and 2001, the events that are really central to this story happen, Michael really just started de-escalating, just showing more and more bizarre behavior. You know when you're on a roller coaster and then it just slowly goes up, goes up, the tension builds, and then you just go downhill from that point on. Yeah, this was the downhill point of that. And it could have been for all sorts of different reasons, for all of the pressures about him paying rent, about making sure that he needs to have another book ready, for all of the pressures of the secrets that he was hiding from his wife, like his bisexuality, like the fact that his wife was still on the loan for this house where he's living with his wife, the load of pressure that Clayton brought with the bomb building, having son 
who is in prison now, is really your choice. It could be everything combined. But once Kathleen and Michael married, Kathleen's sister Lori spoke about this particular event where Michael and Kathleen went on holiday to, like, Paris. And, I mean, both of them had a high status, they lived in this huge house, organized all of these galas, they had money. But after this trip, Lori noticed this Louis Vuitton $2,000 worth bag on Kathleen, and she asked her, like, this isn't you, your style, why the hell would you splash out this much money on a bag? And she said, no, it was Michael. We actually fell asleep on a metro and then sort of didn't wake up in time. So Michael just woke up and he was kind of pissed and aggressive because now they were lost in the middle of the city that they know nothing about. And he kind of like shook Kathleen, leaving bruises on her arms. So to make up for it, he bought her a bag. And these were kind of like the first red flags, that maybe not everything in this household was as it seemed. But then there were also a more public outburst by Michael Peterson, because he was writing. He was writing for different publications at this time, including the Herald Sun. In one of his first columns for the Herald Sun, Michael would complain about the district attorney and the police, saying, the DA and cops can't do anything about those crimes. They can't catch any real criminals in City Hall, so they go after underage voters and bingo players. He attacked the city council. He condemned the proposal of the tax increases, writing, your money is not being squandered, it's being stolen. He would write against the police department, saying that cops are underpaid and deserving of our appreciation, but the administration in particular is making poor decisions. This is the best paragraph. As I say repeatedly in this column, stupid is stupid, wrong is wrong, and it doesn't make any difference who commits the dumbness. He or she needs to be outed. This is like Wendy Williams' death to all style, but he's publishing it in columns on like daily basis. And while he's infuriating everybody that walks and talking shit about everybody, Kathleen is again just as graceful and as competent and smart as she always was. She got promoted at her new company, Nortel, and she was now in charge of 3,000 employees in the offices in Dallas, Ottawa, Toronto. And due to this job, she also started amassing stock options and getting money for that as well. Meanwhile, Michael, because he's writing against the police, the government, the tax increases, he thought he knew it all, and he also thought that he could relate to the public. So he would actually run for mayor. In 1999, his four-point platform promised he would stand up against drugs, gangs, illegal weapons, and he was going to promote racial harmony and merge city and county government and return power to the people. And in order to empathize with people, he added a picture of him, his wife and children, his house in Durham, and said, I love Durham. It has been my home for 38 years. My children have grown up here. He kind of forgot to mention that he has been living in about like 100 places and has also brought the next level of instability to his family, the point that he was divorced. You know, all of that negative stuff. No, let's focus 
on the positive. He's a loving and doting father and husband. And this is while running for mayor when he finally goes too far. I love when these things happen. I love it. Because remember the Vietnam War? Remember how he said he got the purple medal? Is that what it's called? Purple hearts? Yeah. Well, in an interview with a journalist, he showed the wound that he got during his time while he was serving in the Marine Corps. And the journalist did some investigating. You know, Google was quite a thing at the time. And he realized that, no, Michael never actually got that medal and that... In fact, the records he could see was a car accident that kind of corresponded with the scar that Michael showed him during that interview. So, of course, he exposed the shit out of him. This also probably led to a really awkward conversation with his wife, Kathleen, because this was made public, he was publicly exposed, and of course didn't win that election for a mayor, kind of needless to say. But Kathleen, just like his ex-wife, stood by him. I'm not sure if she minded that he lied, I'm not sure what story Michael sold to her, but she never even thought of leaving. And one reason for that might have been the consistent financial problems that the two were going through. In 1999, the two of them were doing well. Like, Michael had his book deals, he still had money from that, and Kathleen was amassing stock options through her company. And for 1999, the combined income from both of them, with also Michael's military benefits, you know, the benefits that he got from his honorable discharge that he also lied about, were almost $300,000. But then, in 2000, Michael, most probably because of how outspoken he was against everybody, wouldn't earn any money through his writing or any other job for that matter. So they depended on Kathy. And this is where in this book we learn one of the grimmest parts of this story that just shows you how calculated Michael was. Because after in the court when they would look and assess the financial struggles that Mike and Kathleen were going through, they would also realize that Michael was still cashing out on Lizzie's two daughters. And that is because he has never adopted them. He knew that he would benefit more if the two of them were still orphans. That is just the cruelest, most sinister thing out there. So they still lived under his roof. He was still raising them, not really liking them as much as he liked Clayton or Todd. But he never fully adopted them. In September 2000, Kathleen's stock values were peaking. They were at the highest level. But then, suddenly, they took a turn and the stock prices plummeted, meaning that her company started downsizing, laying people off, and Kathleen was constantly, in the last couple of months of her life, making calls to her friends and family, saying that she's scared that she's going to be laid off, both of them are technically going to be jobless. How are they going to pay for the house, for the education of their children, for just anything? So that was causing a lot of stress in her life. She was displaying it in a normal way where she was discussing it with people, whereas Michael was taking it out on everybody yet again, including the family dogs 
there was this incident in the book and as much as I am scared of animals, I never had a pet, this just, this is just insane. So the two daughters, Lizzie's daughters, were just around the pool when Michael just came out like screaming, pissed off about something, whatever the hell it was, and started beating the shit out of this dog. And the kids kind of intervened, and Michael was just like, why do you care? Like, he was doing something, like, whether he was running in the pool, whatever the dog was doing. He apparently, again, deserved the punishment, because Michael knows what everybody in this house deserves. And then the next time, when he spoke to Lizzie's daughters, he said that that same dog actually ended up having a heart attack, and that he drowned in the pool. The dog went into a pool, had a heart attack, and then drowned in the pool. So both of the girls' minds were kind of racing, thinking the same thing. Was this just another outburst in violence that nobody could prevent? And was Michael just completely de-escalating? And what will he truly do next? By the end of 2000 and beginning of 2001, the financial situation was just going from bad to worse. Both of them, well, truly Kathleen, because she was the only one working, let's be honest, accumulated over $100,000 in debt because their expenditures were just exceeding their income. Kathleen would say to her friends and family how she's tired, doesn't even have the time to see a doctor, that she's not enjoying what she's doing, and that she's not enjoying her life. And Candace and everybody were just extremely frustrated because they were thinking, what is Michael doing to help this situation? Is he writing a new book? Is he looking for other jobs? You know, there are other jobs for him to be doing to provide for the family, even if he is not doing writing at the time. And also, if he is not doing anything, really, why is everything in disarray? Everybody who went to Peterson's house in the last couple of months of Kathleen's life just said it was completely different to how Kathleen used to keep it up. I mean, they did used to have a maid when they were doing well to clean the house up. It was a huge house. But now it was just mess everywhere. And when Kathleen's sister, Lori, came to visit, she said, like, the dogs, the ones that didn't die of heart attack, also just looked neglected. Like, she removed a leather strap off of one of the dogs, and it just looks like there was a strain that had been there for quite some time. But there were no alarm bells in anybody's heads because Michael was always sitting at the computer. Like, people would come visit, and Michael was just sitting at his computer. They would be like, okay, he's a writer, he's doing... Just keep quiet, you know? He's working on his next masterpiece, the next New York Times bestseller. Michael wasn't really writing during this period of time. I mean, he was writing. He just wasn't writing a book, a manuscript. He was corresponding with a sex escort, a male sex escort, because remember, he was publicly bisexual to his wife and everybody else? Sure, sure. He was writing to a guy named Brad. One of his search histories led him to browsing homosexual pornography. And as he was, like, corresponding on these online chats with people, super interested into this research, somebody gave him a number for Brad, a male-to-male -male sexual escort. Brad identified himself on these websites as a 25-year-old regular athletic guy, 6'1". 
he would describe the dimensions of his chest, of his waist, of his genital area, especially focusing on how well endowed he was. And he posted his standard rates, and they were $150 for an hour and $700 for an entire day. You could even spend a vacation with Brad for a measly $2,000. And there was also a page containing all of the testimonials from the satisfied customers. So Mike wrote him an email saying, you have great reviews and I would like to get together with you. He tried to arrange a day date with him and to sort of entice him, Michael sent him a description of the homosexual films that he himself made when he was in the Marines. He would say that some of his friends did films for him, but he never did, even though Michael himself, describing himself, was better looking and better hung. Mm -hmm. Mike started encouraging Brad to visit him next week, and he would conclude all of these emails with the fantasies about his and Brad's future sexual escapades. And he would conclude saying, just to make sure that Brad is aware, evenings are not great for me. I am married, very happily married, with dynamite wife. This is what the script says. I'm not scripting this. I would not say dynamite wife. Yes, I know, I know. I'm very bi, and that's all there is to it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> These emails would eventually end by the end of September, because Brad was kind of trying to make sure that Mike knows that this is just business, that he's going to have to pay him. And then he kind of seems like Brad stood him up, lost interest, and on September the 30th, he emailed him an apology because he kind of didn't really respond for a while, but Michael would never respond. Michael possibly didn't respond because at the time he might have been down because he was running for another election, this time for the city council by the end of July 2001. And you know how with some people they would take this to mean like you know, try harder, maybe don't shit all over every single establishment in the country. Well, Michael really didn't take this well. In fact, he actually started, again, spitting venom in the columns that he was writing for Duke University newspaper, The Chronicle, and on his own website. This is where we go into the timeline of events preceding Kathleen's death. On Wednesday, December the 5th, Michael would send an email to Kathleen while she was at work. The email would say, Here's the scoop on The Independent, a Durham news weekly outlet. There were no invitations, but we can still go. Let me know if you want me to call in. Or we could just show up at the door Friday night. You looked great last night. If only we hadn't gone to Powell Lim. Let's work on our marriage tonight. Now, if you think about this email, at least to the police, the investigators later, it will kind of seem like Michael was trying to make up for something, for whatever happened at Paulim, that he might have been in a doghouse. Why do they need to work on their marriage? What they would also later find out was that the money was so tight that Kathleen actually made a change to her income plan 
meaning that instead of what she would usually put aside, which was about 80% of her salary and bonuses, she has decided to reduce that amount to only 10%, to only putting aside 10% that year, and they were still in huge, huge debts. But on December the 7th, on Friday, Kathleen booked it as a vacation day and she went shopping with Michael. They went to Costco, they bought some Christmas gifts for the kids, they bought a TV for the house and they would buy a Christmas tree. That Friday evening, they would attend the North Carolina Independent Party, the two of them danced, socialized until one in the morning when the party would break up. The next morning, Kathleen went into work in order to prepare for a business trip. She was supposed to meet at a colleague at the home office outside of Toronto at 9 a.m. that Monday morning, so the upcoming Monday. That afternoon, at Peterson's house, around 3.30 p.m., hundreds of files end up being deleted from Peterson's PC with this purging program that's called Quick Clean. At 4.41 p.m., Michael arrives at YMCA. He goes to the gym. At around 6 p.m., he speaks to Kathleen about the two of them renting a movie. At around 6.59 p.m., there is a receipt of the two of them renting America's Sweethearts. After that, the two of them end up eating dinner. The next timestamp we have is around 9.45 p.m. And this is where Todd's friend came to Peterson's house to pick him up for a party. She sees both Kathleen and Michael sharing what seemed to be a bottle of wine. At around 10.20 p.m., the two of them leave, the friend and Todd. At around 10.40 p.m., password Atwater logs onto Peterson's PC. At 11.08 p.m., Kathleen's colleague speaks with her on the phone, agreeing to email something over. At 11.53 p.m., that email arrives, but will never end up being opened. This friend would say that Kathleen's voice didn't slur on the phone. She didn't seem to be tipsy, drunk, just like impaired in any way. And from that point on, we will only have Michael Peterson's account of events. He will say that around midnight, both of them were drinking a lot, sitting by the pool. There is a gap in time that Michael can't account for between 12.30 to 1.30 a.m. But he says that Kathleen leaves the pool area between 1.45 and 2 and heads inside to go to bed. Michael stays behind in shorts in what is 55 degree weather, so kind of cold and chilly for him to be in shorts, and he stays around up until 2.30, which is when he leaves the pool area, goes in, discovers Kathleen at the bottom of the staircase, and makes the 911 call at around 2.40, 2.41. The paramedics appear by 2.50. At 3 a.m., the police and the detectives start arriving on the scene, and only at 3.25 the scene is secured. And this is where we pick up with the beginning of the first parter, with them searching the scene, finally getting the warrant. Between 4.15 and 5 a.m., 
there would be records of Michael Peterson logging onto his computer. The police is just going to be sort of observing him as they're processing the crime scene, just mumbling to himself. But what they won't learn until much, much later was that Michael Peterson, at that very moment, was deleting some crucial emails from his PC. And that is where we are picking up in part two. Going into the police investigation from that moment on, and finally into Michael Peterson's trial, where they are going to connect all of those dots, hopefully, or will they? And then finally discuss all of the theories on this case, because what if Michael Peterson is innocent? What if this is just an accident? What other theories are plausible apart from him being guilty? Let's have an unbiased account and then, you know, what's that saying? Paul's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt, <laughs> whatever. You make your decisions. That is the point. That is not what that expression means. What does that expression mean? I have lost it. I have officially lost it. I have seen the sunshine, have seen the darkness behind me. I have been here for a while. So if you like these kind of long-form videos, make sure you like, subscribe, raise the podcast on iTunes or whatever it's called. Apple Podcasts. Nobody called it iTunes in like a hundred years. But yeah, leave me comments on... Well, A, did you know any of this information from, like, any other source? Did I miss out on anything? Because that is also possible, because this book had, like, almost 500 pages, so that's something. And what are your theories so far? Is there enough evidence showing that Michael Peterson was de-escalating? That he might snap one day because of all of the debt, because of all of the stressors in his life? Or do you, despite of this, think that Michael had nothing to do with it. I mean, truly, you need the second partner to make that decision, and that should be out in the next couple of days. Well, if you're watching this on YouTube, I plan to release the first partner, like, Wednesday, and then the second one Friday or Saturday, and then, if you're listening this on, by all means necessary, podcast channel, it's gonna be Monday, and then Minnesota instead of Minnesota on a Friday. Cool? Schedules. Schedule. Working it out. Working it out as we go. Why are you still hyped? <laughs> You've been recording for like five hours. It's gonna be a great editing process. Um, yeah, I'm leaving you with outtakes where I'm asking for your help on what some comments mean. Listen, nothing makes sense anymore, but at least, at least, I'm not raging in chronicles about, like, police and tax increases and making people hate me. At least I'm not taking my stressors out on animals and lying to everybody about the activity that I'm doing on my laptop. <laughs> that laptop you just search is about true crime. As you like it and as you know it. I shall be seeing you guys shortly. Goodbye. The energy, the energy is there. The energy was there. The energy was on point today. Alright. <laughs> I think you can see like the little pillow ears. <laughs> they say today is gonna be a long one. Spread <laughs> yourselves mentally, physically, emotionally, I don't know. Go if you had planned a long run, don't go do that now. I have my stress ring on. You're ready. <laughs> We're on this. We're on it. 
Also, um, just a quick advice from the, the not-so-pro, clearly, don't look crime scene pictures up at you in the morning. Unless you want them to flash before your eyes at like 4. Yeah, maybe don't do it. However not graphic they are, just, 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 just stop being ridiculous like me. It's not ridiculous, it's just pure dumbness, my, just pure dumb, dumb and dumber. That movie. Never, never truly did it for me. <laughs> Speaking of Jim Carrey movies, that one never did it for me. How many topics have you gone through in the past, like, 20 seconds? I just, I just recap. You know what? The first thing, once I get monetized, I will go live. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We're going live. There's gonna be two people. It's gonna be the saddest live ever, and I can love it. I'm just gonna go over all of the topics that I have never had a chance to speak to people in like probably five minutes, and I'll be like, "So this was nice," but because there are only two people and only me talking because it is a live about the topics. We have lived through ten lives in the past five minutes, but out of topics. Okay, that's that for the soundtrack. Let's see what that's all. Stick to this, 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 stick to this. What is something that isn't necessarily crime but you consider criminal? Some of you might say the way I look on camera, and to those of you, I mean, you're here for the different reasons. What are you saying? <laughs> What reasons are they here for? Well, clearly not to look at me, not to learn makeup skills, <sighs> just any skills in general, not to look, learn sound skills. Why are you so high above me? Okay, this microphone, it's like, no, the visual I had about the microphone. Why would the penis be up there? Why would the, that be? vision I imagine is like out of like some porn nightmare where a penis would be so high above my head it would just like headbutt me. Well that is a different version of a nightmare that you might have tonight. What is going on? Do you want to see what I see every time I go to adjust the camera and then come back to sit down? Can you see it? I've been watching Stephanie Harlow's coverage in the case. It just looks like, I don't know, I keep a shrine, like I'm her number one fan. I fucking hate the woman. But also because I've been watching it literally before recording this, I kind of compared a lot of this case and Michael Peterson's lies to freaking Casey Anthony. It's just so fucking jarring. Every time I go adjust the camera and I come back, I'm like, here she is! Here she is! A motherfucker! Quite like Michael Peterson is roaming them streets. You're still mentally at the level of a 15-year-old. You know, like, when you meet a person from high school or whatever the equivalent for high school is, when you were around that age, like, 14, 15, and you meet somebody, like, today, you know, when you're like late 20s, 30s, whatever, you meet up with them just on the street, you just pass them by, it's just like the small talk, and that person is still mentally just stuck at that age, and you're like, wow, that that really shouldn't have happened, like, you really should have progressed from this point on in your life. Wowzers, yeah, that, uh, the vibes that I'm getting from, from Mikey Boy here, just like, my man, 
my man, there's some progression that should have happened here. You shouldn't be living the life your parents have lived. And also, you shouldn't have been, like, just possessive motherfucker over everybody. Lying little shit. I need your help to decipher some comments I got on Scott Peterson video. There's only two of them so far, but I just... I just needed to share them. Hey, listen, it's either that or you're listening to the story about how I just pooped twice during the recording of this one video and I'm concerned about my intestines not working. They subscribe for none of this. Um, Editor Maya, this is the one for the outtakes, okay? <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. The first comment is straight to some point. The comment says, innocent man, certainly great whistleblower, fake crime story, unknown truth. What does that mean? <laughs> Please help me. I have been thinking about this ever since this weirdo commented this. Like, what kind of whistleblower? Where did Scott Peterson whistleblow? What? Fake crime, unknown truth. Like, what? Is going on. The second person wrote an essay and I'm also concerned for their mental health. <laughs> so the second comment starts with like how the jury was biased of course and then they say I mean since it's difficult to gather together 12 people who've all recently emerged from solitary confinement or a coma which is what would have been required for someone not to have heard the story from start to finish every night for months. I just absolutely love where their mind went there. They were like, oh, the only way to get the impartial jury was to do what? One of those coma patients wake up from their comatose state. They're like, hey, you know what you would be good for? <laughs> you get dementia, you're like, hey, you can't remember shit. Meaning you can't remember this story. Meaning you're perfect for this jury. <laughs> just imagine waking up being like, yeah, Scott Peterson jury. Life goals. Just imagine waking up from a coma for somebody to be like, no, Scott Peterson's trial is your next stop. I'd be like, oh, please, just can I get comatose again? Like, what is the point of life? Like, why do I need to get into the grimmest case and the details and sit on this jury where they need to show me this body? Nah, get me, get me out of here. I just love how my mind went into visualizing that now. Yeah. So, what do you think about this quote? So I'd really appreciate you help me decipher both of them, especially the first one. Thank you.